Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on this week's episode, we're going to be doing something a bit different than what we regularly do. I was out on the road a bit last week, so we're going to bring you a conversation we published about a year ago in April 2017. Mark Vandermas, Acton's audio and visual manager, speaks with John Stone Street, president of the Coulson Center for Christian Worldview, as well as co-host of Breakpoint, the Christian Worldview radio program founded by Chuck Coulson. Mark and John discuss the vital contributions of Christianity to the development of Western culture, and they talk about the consequences of our society's increasing abandonment of Christian principles and any commitment to an objective standard of truth. So, without further ado, let's begin. We're back on Radio Free Acton once again, and I am so pleased today to have with me in the studio here at the Acton Building, uh, John Stone Street. John is the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And John, uh, first of all, welcome back to Acton. It's great to have you here once again. Oh, I love Acton. I love the uh, I love the all the people, but man, you guys got a sweet building here. I got to tell you, it's it pretty is, nice. It's a, it's a, it, you got great digs. You I, really do. I, it's it's good to hear that. You know, you you get into them sometime, and you can you have tunnel vision. But it's nice to hear somebody come. No, from the it's outside great. And say, Absolutely. And you're here. Reasonably often, I know that the uh, the Colson Fellows, the the Centurions, occasionally use our building and our our facilities for conferences, and I've seen you here a few times for that. And it's always good to have you here, because you're one of the one of the guys that I count on for relatively clear thinking on uh, what is a kind of a chaotic culture that we live in today. And it seems like it's getting it's getting worse. So uh, one of the things I want to ask you. Right off the bat is we, we live at uh, what some people would describe, I think, as the tail end of Western culture. We, we live in this, this culture that has, has grown out of this uh, huge tradition, uh, but a lot of times we don't, uh, and, and I think this is not only Christians, but everyone, we don't really think about where this culture comes from. Uh, and it's, it's also relatively easy today for people to get away with saying that Christianity it really doesn't play a big role in our culture, that it's kind of a disposable part of our culture. Or, uh, you know, you think of the European Constitution where they didn't really want to put in there that Christianity contributed to the development of Europe, all these these sorts of things, either on a high or a low level. And so I think it's important for us, uh, for, for me as a Christian, for all, for all the Christians listening, to understand what is the major contribution, and there are many, but what is the major contribution of Christianity to the culture that we live in today? Well, I think the, the 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 most important one, and this isn't even something that I'm coming up with, but sources as diverse as Friedrich Nietzsche to Francis Schaeffer to Chuck Colson to atheist Luke Ferry uh, would say uh, the, the idea of human dignity. I mean, you don't have even the concept of universal human dignity entering the cultural lexicon uh, short of Christianity. I mean, you have to have something, you know, even our founding documents, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, it's not self-evident that we're equal or that we're, you know, it's self-evident that we're different. And so there has to be a deeper assumption about what makes us human, something that transcends race, transcends gender, transcends size, age, ability, everything else. And uh, as Luke Ferry, the atheist uh, philosophy professor at University of Paris put it, you know, it's, it's Christianity introduce that notion to the world, and we owe our entire democratic inheritance to it. Uh, that's what Christianity gave the world, is a, is a stable ground, the image of God, 
for the, these concepts that now we take for granted. So now we want to keep human dignity. We want to keep human equality. We want to pretend like Christianity was the great enemy of it rather than the supplier of it. And then we're trying to ground it in something else. Uh, and that's just making, you know, it's just the same old story that when you ground human dignity into something other than or human value in something other than uh, something that gives you universal stability, then you just leave people out. You'll leave out the unborn or the elderly or Jews or African-Americans. I mean, we have the story throughout history, right, where people get women or whatever, they get left out. And, and the Christian story is really one of, it, it wasn't immediate, of course. There, the, You know, if, if you look back to the founding of America, of course, there were people that were left out then. Absolutely. But the Christian ideas that were infused in the documents necessitated really the expansion of that idea of who has value, who is, who has the dignity, who, who gets to participate in society because it was a universal concept. Yeah, that, that's an important distinction. And let me go back because what I said, it, it entered the lexicon. It doesn't enter lexicon into the, doesn't mean we always did it right. Oh but, yeah. But you just go back and say, we don't get the idea without, uh, you know, some ideas make other ideas possible. You don't get the idea of human dignity unless that idea of image of God was first uh, f- f- first there. I mean, Frederick Nietzsche thought it was weakness, right? He thought it was weak that we would, you know, assume that everybody has value. I mean, you know, he had this, you know, th- th- this d- deep, uh, you know, faith and power as kind of settling all the problems out. Um, but, but you're right. It just doesn't enter the lexicon. It's not even imagined that people are equal in value uh, until Christianity gives you some sort of category that goes beyond physical appearance. If you uh, were asked to separate yourself from Christianity and come up with just I, I, whatever you want to call it, come up with some philosophy or some way to root human dignity for everyone outside with without Christianity, without reference to Christianity at all, can can it be done? Well, so let's take those worldviews which would be naturalistic, those that would deny God as a creator. In fact, they would deny anything metaphysical, right? So atheism, secularism, Marxism. Well, you don't even have anything metaphysical to ground it on. So all you have to to to, to all you have upon which to determine value is is abilities or appearance or capacity or power. I mean, that's all you have. So you don't have anything in any of those religions or worldviews. Uh, if you go to kind of the new agey sorts of views, um, you, you know, well, to be human is to be God, but so is to be bovine or canine or everything else, right? I mean, it's particularly those that hold some sort of view of reincarnation. In other words, you could say, well, hey, it makes everybody God, but that's not a cool gig if everybody's God, including the cats, right? I mean, it's it's not really— If everyone's it, God, no one's God. That's right. It, when it doesn't distinguish you from any other living thing, that's the key. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, first, I guess, to, to come up with a religion that would allow us to ground human dignity, you'd have to have a creator God. You'd have to have somebody, you know, a moral law giver that could establish these norms and reality. And that, that create, created law giver would have to do more. He would have to give himself more to the creation than, for example, what we see in Islam, where, you know, it's more of kind of a puppeteer, uh, puppet relationship or a uh, kind of a lording over sovereign who's completely other, completely separate. That wouldn't do it for human dignity because that would just make us all kind of slaves we wouldn't have any dignity so you'd have to have a god who gives of himself both in the way he created us uh and then of course you'd have to have either perfect humans or humans made perfect so we're pretty much back to christianity 
I guess it's since it's already here, I'll I'll stick with it. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's an option. Easier, you know, <laughs> it's already there. You know, why go through all the work? Well, we we live in a culture that, and I I guess this is a question that I've wanted to ask a person like you for a long time. My observation of the culture that we live in, and this is just me watching things over the last 15, 20 years, and and kind of thinking about it. Uh, we, we we had a culture that was largely rooted in a Christian understanding of the world. I think that's fair to say in, in, in America and largely in the West. There was a culture that was undergirded by the basic moral values that were taught by Christianity and, and sort of uh, had this, this basic understanding, even if people didn't necessarily adhere to the basic tenets of Christianity, didn't call themselves Christian, there was a basic agreement, I think, on the 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 fact that all men are created equal uh, that uh, you know that uh, the the family was an important institution. Right. That you moral know, absolutes, moral things like absolutes, that. things mm-hmm. of that nature. As time has gone along, it seems like our culture has gone on on divergent paths. On the one hand, you have people who uh, I, I I guess I would count myself among these who who still hold to those traditional uh, beliefs uh, that uh, that a person uh, an American would hold to, or that a uh, a person generally from the West would hold to about human dignity. Uh, and and the uh, the image of God and and, and so on and so forth, uh, being in 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 the basis for human dignity, but more and more it seems like we have a a divergence where there are people who are outright rejecting that Christian foundation of society and 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 very very working very hard to to excise it from any public expression uh, and from any part any any real significant part in the culture, and I've I've thought for a long time these two these two strains of thought are not compatible they can't go on together is it possible to maintain a common culture when you have these sorts of divergences in the basic philosophical understandings of the culture does that make sense what i'm asking yeah absolutely i mean i think it's possible for a while until the institutions start to shift or what's what's at the center becomes the peripheral what's at the peripheral becomes the center so you mean you could have a bunch of people kind of rejecting rhetorically christian ideas particularly by the way it doesn't start by rejecting christian ideas it's exactly what romans one says it starts by rejecting christian morality which leads to rejecting the existence of god and the dignity of man and everything else but but you can still have people you can still have a, a stable society if you have institutions uh, that uh, are still centered and built around some of these ideas to l- limit human f- human sin, uh, to promote virtue and goodness, uh, to, to give you some sort of stable environment, uh, you know, upon which to raise citizens. Uh, you know what Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, you know, noticed when he came across all the mediating institutions of culture. As long as those things are in place, uh, it's not going to be perfect, but but you can still have a, a, a society. Let me take it to something else. I mentioned Nietzsche's name a couple times. Nietzsche wrote a parable uh, called the parable of the madman in which, you know, the madman jumps into the midst of these intellectuals and he says, God is dead. But then he starts talking and they laugh at him because they're like, no, no one believes in God anymore. And, and then and then Nietzsche says, but how did we unchain this earth from its son? And then he goes through and talks about you have a bunch of intellectuals there that the madman's talking to who thinks well, no one believes in God. What a silly belief. And you've got the madman who realizes that what you believe about God is what you believe about everything else, that God is a controlling belief, not just an independent or isolated belief. 
And so that's what the mad. That's the rest of the parable. Of the madman is the madman talking about all the consequences of 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 unchaining the earth from its sun. In other words, you don't just lose God; you lose the thing that held the earth in orbit. Sure, right? Yeah, you, you, and 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 that includes law and politics and education. And so. You know, Francis Schaeffer talked about living in a post-Christian culture when it came to morality, but we're in a post-Christian culture when it comes to institutions. It's one thing to be in a post-Christian culture when it comes to ideas. It's another thing when it starts trickling down. In fact, the madman said, you know, the time is coming, but I've come too soon. These people don't even realize what's about to happen. That's what's happened, but now now we realize it. So it's no longer a post-Christian culture. It's a post-Christian and darn proud of it culture. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an intentional experiment to put, for example— uh, you know, government institutions in the place, government control in the place of of, of, of free voluntary associations, uh, to put uh, government institutions like school in the place of the family, right? To to change when when you change the institutions of authority and responsibility, now you have diverging views that have diverging infrastructures. Sure. If that makes sense, yeah. I think that's where we're at. I, I think we've been able to live off the Christian capital. For a long time, and so you can survive for a while. But once you lose the institutions, the in, which are essentially the infrastructure of a society, then you're in big trouble. Yeah, people. I, I think a lot of people just don't. Either they they haven't ever thought about, it or they simply don't want to think about the fact that if you change the foundational assumptions of a culture, you you're not going to keep the things that are in the culture. That's the, right. The, yeah. That you 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 love democracy. You love representative government. You love. Uh, the rule of law, but you're, you you don't love the thing that, that that's right. Based, well, that's all that, that that's based on. Yeah, and listen, the last uh, you know ten times I heard Chuck Colson speak, he began his talk with this question: Can freedom be sustained where virtue does not flourish? And the answer is no. What do we want? We want democracy, but we we want we want economic freedom, but we don't want virtue. What what could possibly go wrong with this plan, right? I mean, you just you, you want one without the other. It's like you want to step off the roof, but not want to hit the ground. You, you don't get that choice once you step off the roof. Once you give up on virtue, you can't actually have stable society. Yes, and that and that goes to the question of truth. Wanting to step off the roof and believing that you have wings doesn't mean that you have wings. Yeah, that's right. And we we see, we we've now entered this era where where feelings are actually trumping fact in a lot of ways. And one of the things you you were here today for the Acton Lecture Series. One of the areas that you talked about. And I think that. Really, the area that that is the most obvious in all of this is the area of human sexuality. Yeah, um, it, it, the, we we've entered this era where it doesn't matter genetically what you are; it's it's about what you feel you are. I, I'm just curious if you can. Is there any other sector in our society, any other place that you can look at that is comparable to the way that we think about, or the way that that I, I, I guess the elite class thinks about human sexuality, where you can kind of just make the rules as you go along? Is there any other place that no, that no, happens no and, and th- th- this is what i was trying to say today and roger put it uh, put it so well in a 2013 article that we, we have a cosmological shift where all of reality now is seen through sexual terms and 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 you're right i mean like for example i, I was having a conversation just last weekend with a, a, a young skeptic on marriage and so on he was like well we see um homosexual activity in the animal kingdom so it doesn't that prove and i'm like why is it that the only thing we look to the animal kingdom to justify when it comes to human behavior is sex? I mean, here animals eat their young. Animals, you know, steal from each other. Animals throw their feces. Th- these aren't things that we say, well, because it's there, I must be genetic. It's only sex that gets this special special treatment. Uh, same thing with, um, uh, uh, you know, disassociation between body and, and mind, right? So if I, if I think I'm disabled when I'm not, 
There's actually a category for that, right? There's a whole community of transabled. They think they should have an amputated limb. Uh, and the doctors call it a psychological disorder because it's a disconnect between their mind and reality. If I think I'm an animal, if I think I'm George Washington, I mean, these are all psychological disorder. The only thing that gets a free pass is if I think I'm a boy and I'm a girl. So it, it's only when it comes to sex that we make up different rules, which tells you that sex is now the controlling factor of our society. So, and, and that's not a stable enough category to make human uh, to, to determine human dignity. The the ironic thing is that in our society as well, Christians are often the ones who are accused of being obsessed with sex. Oh yeah, when, oh yeah. When in in reality, um, the, well, you've just built a society that is entirely sur- the center of it. Is sex, the only know? thing we talk about with kids from kindergarten through twelfth grade at school is sex. We don't even have math class that long. I'm so tired of talking about sex. I could scream. I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's not me making this decision, right? As a cultural commentator and radio host, I don't want to talk about this stuff anymore. There's other things to talk about, but no, it, it's not. It's not the, the the right that or religious right that's obsessed with sex. Absolutely um, not. No. What, what is uh, in in your view? You're you're sitting there in in the Colson Center. You you observe the world around you, and you you look at our culture. What is the what is the greatest? What what is the thing that went wrong? Is, is there is there is there a way to sit sit and say you know I can pinpoint uh, this at this point the church went from being an influential institution in society to being. Uh, far less influential and almost like uh, desperately trying to hang on to its sure. credibility. Where where did this where where did this happen? Well, listen, there's a whole history, uh, and it's the story of secularization. And secularization is a story of two directions. Number one is the story of pushing religious institutions and religious ideals further and further out of the center of culture to the peripheral culture. On the flip side, there was also not only the pushing but the running. So there was a a sense of running. So I mean, you, we could look at the whole story of Western civilization and talk about you know the 30 years war and the move from a, a deistic century uh, the 18th century to the atheistic 19th century uh, you know we, we, we could move we, we could talk about all that history we could look much more locally at America and talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy and the scopes trial so there's multiple chapters in this story but but you're you're right I mean in that the real thing is is that religion and religious truth, is now put into a different category than truth. It's put into a category of preference, values versus facts, feelings versus uh, truth, faith versus reality. These two things are separate. I, I've been really mad at CNN over for about a month now. Um, and mainly, You're not the only one, apparently. <laughs> I know, it has nothing to do with politics. That's what's amazing. It had to do with religion. They had a quiz. Um, that, well, first of all, they had an article that re- they rehashed from 2012 about Jesus never existing and how, you know, they, they, they imply in the article, like, this is up in the air in the scholarly community that there was such a man that Jesus of Nazareth. Some crazy people, you know, you, you can find people who believe the earth is flat. There are some way left crazy scholars who think that Jesus never existed. Bart Ehrman and everybody. I mean, this, this is not a theological debate, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, right after that, I woke up to a quiz on a Sunday morning. You should never check your news feed before going to church. No. It's bad for your soul. No. I did that, and CNN had a quiz about um, how much knowledge of Christianity do you have? And it was really aimed at Christians. You could tell how they titled it and subtitled it. Sure. It's like, do you really know Christianity as much as you want, as you think it is? So it has a 10-question quiz with a sum total of one question about Jesus. <laughs> one. That's it. Where Jesus walked on water. A sum total of two questions that had anything to do with the Bible, right? So the Jesus question plus how old was Methuselah. The other eight questions were bizarre. I mean, like one was, 
We eat deviled eggs here to talk about to celebrate Easter. What do they eat to celebrate Easter in an obscure commune in southwest France? What do they throw at each other to celebrate Fat Tuesday in Belgium? I mean, it was bizarre. But it so it tells you nothing about what you know about Christianity. What it does tell you is what CNN thinks about religion, which is that CNN doesn't think religion has anything to do with truth. That CNN thinks religion is about experience. So it's personal and private. And that's the fundamental problem that's taken place in society and in the church. The society thinks that faith is not in the same realm as facts and reality, and Christians have bought it. Christians have taken a what is to be a personal faith, a personal Savior in Jesus Christ, and turned it into a private faith. I've been reading the Pentecost sermon for the last couple weeks, preparing for some speaking engagements. And Peter, you know, in Jerusalem, right after the crucifixion, sums up all the events of Holy Week, and his conclusion is, Jesus is Lord. Right. I mean, this isn't a private thing. It's not Jesus is Lord to me or Jesus is my Lord. It's that Jesus is Lord. Like this is the reality. This is the and that's the part that a lot of Christians have lost, which is why we've gone along with secularization, which is not that Christianity is not true. It's that Christianity is irrelevant because it's only personal and private. Christianity is personal, but it's public truth about the world. And it, it it's that sort of a mindset. And I think, well, that, that mindset has gone throughout our culture, but that's that's why it's so disturbing to so many people with a secular mindset that things like, uh, I think of the Hobby Lobby decision. Right. How in the world could people, uh, you know, run a corporation and claim that they are trying to run it according to Christian principles? That's an imposition of their values or something. It, 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 we, we've we've, we've uh, so washed the public square of any real understanding right. of what religion is. That that it's it's unthinkable to people that religion would have an impact outside of what you do on Sunday morning in church. Well, and not only that, but we've replaced religion with sex, right? So here we are back again talking about sex. <laughs> um, sex I don't want to talk about I, sex stop! anymore. No, no, but but here's the here's the important point: we've washed a public square of religion and we've replaced it with sex. Sex is the new first freedom. The the yeah. thing that you cannot question, right, is sex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in other words. It is more important what someone feels they are in terms of gender and sexuality than the body parts they have gender. So this is a new religion. There's, this is metaphysics. This isn't anything that is uh, uh, you know, provable, testable, or anything like that. Uh, and you mentioned the Hobby Lobby case. I, I look at a case in New Mexico with Elaine Photography, Elaine, oh, yes. H- Elaine Huguenin, because the concurring opinion from Justice Bossen in that case— of the of the uh, Arizona Supreme Court. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. I say, yeah. say New Mexico. It was. Or, I'm sorry. I'm, no, no, it wasn't New, New Mexico. New, Lane, no, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Was, of the state Supreme Court. The that's state what I was getting. Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, Boston, yes. yeah, that's right. The uh, the New Mexico Supreme Court. Yep. What he wrote there was he said uh, he he basically went and he said you know as uh, a people of faith the Huguenins have a right to believe what they want to believe and worship where they want to worship. That's not freedom of religion. That's freedom of worship. Freedom of religion is not going to where you want to go to church and believing what you want to believe in the privacy of your own homes and your own minds and your own buildings of worship. It's taking and living out your life from those deeply held convictions. That's freedom of religion. So he basically takes freedom of religion, turns it into freedom of worship, which isn't what the founders had in mind. It isn't what we've lived with. But then he says, and this is the key part, the Huguenins, he says, except when the Huguenins go into their public life, They have to curb those beliefs to make way for other people who don't believe the same thing. So what he says is freedom of religion has to be curbed 
to make way for other freedom. So what he did in his decision is pit religion versus sex and said sex wins over religion because religion has to be kept into the privacy of your own home. But hey, sexuality. And the irony here is is what what they were being willing what they were being asked to do was not articulate I support same sex wet marriage. They were being asked to give their creative gifts of photography to celebrate a lesbian relationship. This is a former client of hers. She had taken pictures of, of this woman who's a lesbian. That wasn't the issue. It was participating in a ceremony. So what the Justice basi- Justice Boston basically says is, Elaine Huguenin, you have to separate your beliefs from your behavior. You can believe what you want, but you can't behave that way because if you behave that way, then you won't behave. You won't actually participate in the behavior of someone else. He chose sex over religion. And so now we have a replacement it's not just that religion's out of the public square; it's that sex is in. Let's let's talk about it quickly before we wrap up here. A practical question, uh, actually two practical questions. Number one, we we talk about the the distinction that's made now between um, between religion and religious views, and then the the scientific world. There's there's often that distinction. You know, yay science is kind of a, a meme now on the internet. Um, how do Christians respond when people uh, insist that they not base any of their public actions on religious views, but they must base it on science or "quote unquote" reason, because that's 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 something that often you'll you'll hear in debates, uh, in comment sections, wherever people insist that religion and reason are two different things. How how does a Christian uh, effectively parry that argument? Well, I think the first thing is we 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 call at least at some level. Uh, we call baloney where it needs to be called, whereas you know, the idea that everything must be proven by science is a self-defeating statement because that statement can't be proven by science. So no one really believes that. You know, everything must be proven by reason. That itself can't be proven by reason. There's no way to prove that statement by reason. So we don't believe everything has to be proven by reason or science. That's scientism, and it's and it's intellectually um, uh, unsustainable. And I think we need to point that out where possible. The second thing I think we need to do is call baloney when people say science says, science is settled, science says, science is settled. What does that even mean? Science doesn't say anything. Scientists say a lot. Right. Sometimes scientists are right and sometimes scientists are wrong. And we have ways and that's the, the beauty that it can be self-corrected. But, you know, there's enough examples of the science being settled and then being overturned that, that we, we just need to point some of those things out. Yeah, science is actually, in a lot of cases, very unsettled. Very. Well, honestly, if science is legitimate, it should always be unsettled, you know? It should always be open to alternative facts and, alter, I mean, uh, other facts, new facts. you got to be careful. i got to be, yeah. I mean, can we, can we, we edit that? We live in Trump's that? America. Yeah. Can we edit that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We always have to be for, – for new evidence and new data and so on. Let's put it that yes, way. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I think that's the other thing that, that, that we need to say. Uh, the other thing is is I do think, though, Christians need to be as good as they can in speaking um, – in what Chuck Colson would call prudential language. This is one of the things we do a lot on our breakpoint commentaries. Uh, this is also what we train our Colson fellows to do through that program, is to be able to make public arguments. Um, so when it comes to same-sex marriage, for example, I when I talk about same-sex marriage in public, uh, I'll talk about it in two ways. Number one is I'll say, what, is the, the, what does the Bible say about this, about marriage? And then what does what if I leave God out of marriage? What if I just look at nature? What if I look at so, uh, sociology and, and history and so on? Now, here's what happens. Uh, I was fact, I had this conversation the other day. We a kid wanted to challenge my view on same-sex marriage, a college kid, and so I, I was talking to him, and and uh, he said, well, that's your religious views. And I said, well, what religious, what religious truth did I appeal to? 
I haven't quoted one Bible verse. I have not said that God says. I have not said anything. I've all of my, everything that I've just said and made the case for marriage. I didn't appeal to religion one time. That's not my beliefs. I appealed to facts. I appealed to science. I appealed to history. I appealed to sociology. Uh, and, uh, and and I think what happens is you need to expect, even if you do make a prudential argument, people, when it comes to abortion and marriage and religious freedom, almost always will accuse you of being religious anyway. And I think, you sure. just, again, call baloney. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. Yep. I didn't. I don't argue life by looking at, you know, Psalms. I argue life by looking at um, size, level of development, you know, environment, and degree of dependency. Well, the the th- the thing that pops to mind during during your your speech uh, just a little while ago, you mentioned that the world is actually on our side. Yeah, not the world culturally, but the 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 evidence in a lot of cases because Christianity views the world as it actually is. You're going to find in a lot of cases that the religious argument that you make probably will correspond with a lot of the evidence that's out there. Yeah. You know, one of the things, there's some rhetorical things. I think we just got to be clever. This Bible talks about being, you know, clever. I think sometimes we need to start those conversations rather than answering the question. But we start with another question like, you know, that's a really interesting question. I do have strong opinions about that. Um, But before I do, do you consider yourself an open-minded and tolerant person? Are you open to views other than your own? I mean, because, you know, immediately we're going to be accused, particularly if we violate some of the cultural orthodoxy of being intolerant and so on. And I think we need to get that out there. Let's 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 make sure you're open to it, because otherwise, you know, you can waste a lot of breath and a lot of time and a lot of energy. And there's probably better things, uh, better ways to use that energy. One other one other practical question before we, we wrap this up. There's a there's a lot of of reasons I think that Christians, uh, especially you know conservative Christians, can can look at the world and feel discouraged right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's very it's very easy. And and again, you you talked about not checking your your newsfeed before church. A lot of times, I just don't check my newsfeed because I <laughs> you know I can't deal with that every day. What what reason do we have for hope? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I tell uh, we've been telling our, our our audience, and I tell everyone that I speak to read First Peter. Read First Peter. Read First Peter. This is an epistle uh, that Peter writes to a group of people who are heading into persecution. They're not quite there yet, but they're headed in there. This is Nero's uh, before Nero's persecution really heats up. And uh, and what Peter says is just like by the way, Philippians is the book of joy written from a prison. <laughs> Peter is the book of hope written from uh, persecution. And what Peter says is very clear: hope for the Christian is not an option. It's not a feeling. It's you know, and, and part of that is you got to define hope. Hope is not for like I hope this changes or that changes or this gets easier or that gets you know better. It's hope in an event that has taken place. Paul Peter is very clear and that our hope is in Christ Jesus, the risen Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. So I quote Richard John Newhouse all the time uh, on this, who said uh, the Christian has not right to despair because despair is a sin. And the Christian has not reason to despair, quite simply, because Christ is risen. There is one source of hope for Christians, and it's not in a sense something changing in our environment or things getting better or easier or whatever. It's one thing, Christ is risen. And that is the most true thing about every cultural moment throughout all of history. Christ is risen from the dead. So overshadowing every Supreme Court decision, every ISIS uh, terrorism attack, every Miley Cyrus album, <laughs> is uh, even that, is the risen Christ. He, that is the truest thing about the world we live in, is that Christ is risen from the dead. 
I've been talking with John Stone Street, the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And uh, first of all, I want to ask you before you go, talk a little bit about the Colson Center and how people can get in touch with Colson Center and and the resources that you guys have, because it's a fantastic organization. Yeah, we're named after the late, great Chuck Colson, who really wanted the church to care and think deeply and live well in culture. So we help Christians make sense of culture and make a difference in culture. We want them to think well and live well. And we do that through a number of things. Our daily commentary breakpoint is heard on 1200 radio outlets a day, emailed to 200,000 people a day. Uh, and this is just a daily drip of Christian worldview engaging the culture. So you want to know what's happening in the world and how to think about it from a Christian, subscribe to Breakpoint. Go to breakpoint.org. We also do a one-year deep dive training program in Christian worldview, a, a, an emerging lay leadership program for those Christians who know that God's calling them to something deeper and to make a bigger difference in their society than they currently are. That's called the Colson Fellows Program, named after Chuck. Chuck uh, wanted his legacy not just to be organizations, but to be people that were that he had he had trained and so we carry on that program in his name colson fellows and so those are the two big things we do but we're helping again christians make sense of the culture and make a difference in the culture our website is breakpoint breakpoint.org and uh, speaking of culture, you've got a book coming out this June on culture called I Practical did. Guide to Culture, which is going to be a great resource as well. Yeah, that's right. It comes out June 1. It was written with a good friend of mine named Brett Kunkel. We're both uh, dads, and we both felt the pain of a lot of our friends that times have changed. Like, and a lot of parents and, and mentors and teachers and educators, we really aimed the book, by the way, at those who are personally invested in the next generation. It was like, well, how do I actually navigate culture? And it's practical. That's the point. It wanted to be practical, a how-to guide on the biggest questions and issues of our day. John Stone Street, it's great to have you here. There, there is no way that anyone could fill Chuck Colson's shoes, but uh, impossible. You don't need to fill Chuck Colson's shoes because uh, because you're doing a fantastic job being John Stone Street. Absolutely, love you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you again to all our listeners out there. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions or ideas for segments you would like to hear on Radio Free Acton, contact us at rfa at acton. ACTON.org or call us at 888-705-4180. If you like what you hear today, give us a rating on iTunes. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.